Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are in the middle of uh, a Rashi and we stopped kind of halfway through really in terms of like the, the length of the Rashi, like two thirds of the way through, but um, ready to read part two of the Rashi. Uh, and part two is an interesting one, uh, a doozy. And I think Matt was the one reading last week, and I'm not going to deprive him of the great joy of reading this part of the Rashi. And normally we don't have the same reader continue from week, one week to the next, but Matt deserves this Rashi. So where are we? We're cha- chapter four of the book of Shemot. We're uh, in verse number um, 24, 24, 24. Uh, we've already taken a peek at verses 25 and 26 because it's, it's a, it's a three verse little story. And in order to make sense of what's happening in 24, you kind of have to know what's happening next. Um, but we're halfway through the Rashi in 24. We haven't actually formally read verse 25 yet. Let me just move my computer bit so I can have my book in front of me one second. Okay. So, uh, just remind us verse 24, Vayahi Vaderech Bamalon. Uh, and it was on the on the way at the lodging. We talked about what that could mean. Um, it might mean like a place, like a, a some kind of a um, an inn, or it might just be where they happen to do the action of lalun, which is to sleep overnight. Five kashehu Adonai, God encountered Moshe. and well, I'm putting in the um, the, um, the objects here, but we, we discussed several different ways in which all of the pronouns, which are not specifically named in this verse, can be ascribed, right? But I'm going to go with the most classic understanding that God encountered Moshe, Vayavakesh, and God sought Hamito, the killing of him, Moshe's death, right? That's the, the, the most common understanding of what happened, that Moshe, along with his entourage, his family, of course, we're not sure exactly why the family is there, given the fact that his family had already been sent back in the uh, two verses ago or three verses ago. God encounters him, and seemingly out of nowhere, God uh, says to God's self, we, the reader, are told, Moshe has to go. Okay? We talked about all of the, um, the ways in which this is evocative of um, themes in the book of Exodus that have happened and that are coming up. Right, the 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 savior who is about to bring God's message to threaten Pharaoh that you have to that the Israelites have to go is now being apparently told by God that he has to go and the whole notion of um of 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 the death of the, of the leader of the of of the, of the people right Pharaoh is going to be threatened by Moshe and now Moshe is threatened by God okay we got halfway through the Rashi and we stopped right. Um, so I keep pausing because people keep coming into the Zoom. I want to just make sure that no one's in the waiting room. Right at the words, um, Malone, Amar. I think we're at the Masachet Nedarim. Um, so we, um, because we read the first part of the Rashi that said that, that, uh, the significance of the Malone in the verse is to suggest that whatever Moshe did wrong, it's because Moshe was folk dealing with the uh, 
with, with, with the rate he was going to get at the hotel, the Motel 6, rather than the obligation that was in front of him, which was to circumcise Eliezer. Apparently, Eliezer is born, according to the reading of the Pshat, and Moshe hasn't circumcised him. And the first part of the Rashi was M- M- Moshe thinking, well, which way do I err here? If I circumcise him right away, then I'm going to delay in responding to God's command that I go into Egypt. But if I go right towards Egypt, I'm going to imperil Eliezer because you shouldn't travel with a baby right after you circumcise him. So he had no way to go there, uh, and therefore he couldn't have been blamed for that vacillation. He's blamed, according to the first reading of the Rashi, for getting to the Malon <laughs> and, and for setting up his room and tasting the minibar rather than doing the Brit Milah. And then Rashi has a Masech um, Nedarim. Um, sorry, that ends with the Masech Nedarim. All this is in the second dream. And now the uh, Haya. Matt, you can see where we are. I can't hear you either. Are you there? Right. Okay. Yes. Masechet Nedarim in the tractate of vows, I guess. The Haya. Hamalach naaseh kamin nachash uvol o mirosho vaad yarechav vachoser uvol o miraglav vaad otomakom. Okay, so it was that the angel uh, became sort of a, a sort of snake and or a serpent and swallowed him from his head until his hips and then uh, returned or came back or kept going and swallowed him from his feet until the same place. Okay. Keep going. (laughs) You said we should remember Arthur at this point. I guess Arthur Arthur would have said, what's, what, 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 (laughs) who needs a snake? The story is good enough the way it is. (laughs) All right. Uh, Hey, Vida, and that's and Tzipora understood that it was because of the circumcision. Right. So, 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 so first, just explain the shot of the absurdist midrash, and then we'll discuss our reactions to the absurdist midrash. What, what's the absurdist midrash saying? In a, in like to 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 read it as generously possible. How is this an explanation of the scene? Uh, well, that, well, somehow that this this uh, bizarre vision, let's call it, was actually that God didn't appear in person like he did at the Garden of Eden to make clothes for Adam and Eve, but rather in the form of a snake who took on this hideous apparition and swallowed Moshe from one direction and then from the other direction. And what didn't he swallow? He didn't swallow the the male organ. Basically. Right. So, so the image, in case it wasn't clear, is that <laughs> the, the, the serpent half swallows Moshe twice and each time stopping right at the, right. At the groin, right? right? And again, of course, it's, it's absurd as Midrash, but the, the problem the Midrash is trying to resolve is a, it's still a problem whether or not we think the Midrash is absurdist, right? And this is the, and Rashi is bringing this Midrash from the Darim to explain it. What's the problem? The problem is, however confused we are by the scene, mm-hmm. within the scene, how much more confused is Tzipora if she's yes. there? And what is it that Tzipora figures out such that in verse 25, she knows how to solve the problem? Like, 
the, the Torah assumes, however confused we are, that Sipporah figured something out from this encounter. In the words, that God encountered Moshe and sought to kill him, by the beginning of the next verse, Sipporah has ascertained what's going on in the situation, figured out how to resolve it, and is on the way to solutionizing. She took the flint and she circumcised. We want to say that the Midrash want to say to Sipporah, how did you know? And Sipporah said, weren't you watching? And it wasn't, it wasn't a, a talking snake. If it was a talking snake, the talking of the snake would have said, hey, you know, time for a brisk. But exactly. No, so like, like the dog wants to go out, he stands by the door. So you understand. And same thing here. That's exactly right. It had, had only this been um, the, the, the ass of Bilam, right. we could have gotten a direct answer. But right. even, you, you know, only Genesis, only Genesis serpents speak. Exodus serpents, you know, are minds. And they, they, lost, they, they lost the gift of speech. Like, we lost the gift of prophecy. Okay, so that's the shot of the Midrash that Rashi is bringing, and that's the reason why he's bringing it. So let's just pause there and see if there are any questions on that or comments on it. Barry? Well, the Midrash is interesting. I, I wondered where, where, is, where is off the wall going to help understand this. So uh, what I'm envisioning here, this is the, 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 uh, the snake and with Adam and Eve and uh, that, that God, uh, uh, Eve uh, confused w- at the beginning uh, with the fruit. And, and, and now uh, Tzipporah is, is taking action and, and uh, uh, prevents uh, this from happening. So um, yeah, that I is interesting. I allow myself to be, this is confused with the garage, but it's yeah, great. I can be just as off the wall as the midrash. Yeah, and uh, not that off the wall, right? So we we don't have that many spaces in Torah where in where in pshat or what I'd call classic well-known midrash um, a uh, a serpent comes in, right? So the linkage to the Garden of Eden is really an, an, an immediate one. It's hard not to make the association, and I like your your suggestion that. In, in scene one, in the shot itself of the serpent, uh, the, 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 the woman is, the woman is, 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 is blamed for the calamity. And scene two, the woman resolves the potential calamity. Really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that's intentional on the part of the authors of the Midrash or why Rashi's bringing it, but it doesn't matter because as we've just, as we said a thousand times, we are still engaged in the very process that produced the text that we're studying. And so, Mid- so Mid- Midrash is being born in this moment. Wonderful. Vered? Booker Or. For me, when I look at the, this short pasuk, I have two different comments. Comment one is, reminds me about Yaakov struggling with the angel. So it is kind of the same idea that Moshe, in a different way, is struggling with an angel. I read Adonai as an angel. Mm-hmm. So there's this maybe equivalent of important people or, you know, in our tradition, in our, in our uh, faith. And the other idea that when I was looking at it, and I was thinking that Pasuk of Daled, number 24, actually 
has to be after or in the middle of Pasuk 20. Yeah. Because there is a, a mishmash here, if I can use this word, of the, the how to say, the way the story flows. So this should have happened when they were on the way and there is saying, you know, the way and this and this and parole this. And now in the middle of the thing, okay, let's go back and see what actually happened in the Malone. So I think that if we can rearrange a little bit the order, we can't, but in our mind to understand what actually happened there is that they went on the way, they checked in in Motel 6, like you said, and he, rather than doing the breed as, you know, we're trying to figure, to say that Moshe is a perfect man. He wasn't, you know, taking his time. He he did not forget to do the breed, but he was figuring out that it's difficult to travel with an infant that was just having a breed, so we'll do it when we reach our destination. But then something else happened in this story. And then all of a sudden, it's it's this thing with the, and which we don't understand. And always the Midrashim are coming to fill this void and telling us, you know, this story. And Sipora, you know, she came to the rescue, but that is in the next pasuk. Yeah. yeah. That next point, I think you may have um, missed one of the classes. Um, Larry was made, Larry Herman was making a very uh, similar point that there is, there, there seems to be a A, B, A, B section. Yes. Um, okay. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's, it's yeah. Baruch, Baruch Shakivant, um, in these last few verses. And, and not that this scene would be any less odd, would be, be any less in the category of Ze Omer Darshani, a scene saying, please help me understand this. But the, the chronology would make more sense. And, um, to, to quote the, the theory that I, that I invoke all, often of legio difficultare, right? That if you have two potential readings of a section of, of ancient, ancient, um, text, our instinct is to say that the one that makes the most sense is the original one. Whereas most scholars would say the one that makes the least sense is the original one because it makes more sense that something seemed off and was changed later by someone who thought that the text could be written differently than the reverse. So it's hard to know um, if, if you take a, a fully biblical critical look at this chapter, it's hard to know what one might think of as what the original version of this text was, right? What the we- original weaving together. It's strange that the text would have been in order and then a later editor would have unordered it, Right. It, 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 it's more reasonable to think that somehow this is the reason, this is the way it came out because no one would have, no one would have turned it, you know, to a Picasso, right? Like if it's a Picasso, it's a Picasso. No one would have taken a, um, a, a, a standard still life and turned it into, uh, an, an absurdist Picasso, but we don't know. And, and I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's right to at least imagine these chunks of verses in that way. Uh, I just wanted to emphasize the struggling with the Malach like Yaakov. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Great. Ilan and then Joanna. 
Uh, this is more of a, of a question, and I'm trying to understand it, which is I joined the class at the beginning of Exodus, and this is by far and away the most Raiders of the Lost Ark-ish uh, midrash that Rashi has, has included in, in, in at least in the book of Exodus. And he, he seems to be, up until this point, as logical as one can be while interpreting the Torah. Um, so is his motivation here to clarify or is his motivation here to say, listen, I'm stumped. So I'm just going to throw this crazy, uh, this crazy idea out there. The, the best answer to your question you can anticipate, which is I have no idea, right? I know that I am heartened to think that Rashi was as stumped to use your word by this set of verses as we are. And I do think that the precise reader who doesn't take the stance of this is ridiculous, I'm going to move on to the next scene, but who wants to give as much kavod to this scene as every verse in the Torah, right? Which is not every person and not everybody who studies ancient texts approaches that way. But if you do, there, there is a problem to be solved, as we said before, between verses 24 and 25. And I don't have a better one than this. Right. I I don't go to bed tonight thinking that Moses was half swallowed by a snake when I think about the story of my ancestors. But I don't have a better explanation or any explanation for what transpired such that Zipporah had a sense to do what we're about to see that she does in 25. Right. This is um, I'm going to bungle the the way he says it. But um, Mordechai Finley, the rabbi from Orha Torah. Um, has a really good way of describing how we should step back from our reactions to texts, either biblical or midrashic, that are either offensive, because they're offensive to our modern sensibility, which you know is not what you're saying, or too fantastical to warrant our serious attention. And again, he says it much better than I'm about to say it, but I'm really moved by how he approaches it. He says, if you remove the... The, uh, the, the, the outrageous texts, the, the, the problem or the lacuna in the, in the realm of ideas or in society that these texts were coming to um, respond to is still present. And the question is, how else would you have expected that ancient people to respond? He says this beautifully over the, um, over the ordeal of the sota, right? So in, in Masechet, in, in Parshat Naso, you have the, deal of the, the ordeal of the woman who's, who's suspected of adultery. And to any modern, even slightly pre-modern sensibility, for us to read through what the woman has gone through when she's expected of adultery um, is, is, is very painful. And you know, we read every year. And I won't do it justice, but he basically says that even if you remove all those verses and they never existed in Jewish, in Jewish law and, 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 in, and in ancient canon, you know what did exist and still does exist? Jealousy founded or unfounded in a marital relationship where one person suspects the other of doing something that would have, that would sunder, uh, the relationship apart. And every relationship in every society has to have, has to find a way to deal with it, right? So you can remove the parts that don't make sense, but that doesn't remove the human condition that was the engine for those very verses. Very, very different scene than this. This is, we're not talking about something offensive, like offensive about this. It's just odd. Um, but you take out that, Midrash that Rashi's quoting, and and then we would have our hour-long class today saying, okay, class, how do you explain how Tzipora 
knew what to do and knew the precise thing to do and what not to do to save her husband from being killed. I, I have not come up with a better answer, even though I share the same resp- response to you on this midrash, which is, mm, I'm not going to add that to my 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 canon of of what happens to Moshe in his life. Um, Joanna, I see the parallels that um, Vered was pointing out to Jacob, but I also see a huge parallel here in this midrash to Yonah. There's a leader who's been commanded to go. Um, and address not Israelites, but a foreign nation who delays on that task and then gets swallowed. Like to me, there's like a, this resonance to the Yonah story also. Joanna, once you said it, it becomes so painfully obvious or wonderfully obvious. And I never thought about that. Interesting. It never came, it never came across my mind as far as I remember. Um, but once, once it's there, it's there. And it reminds me of something that I share with this class. Um, I don't know, at this point, months ago, when Moshe was getting the invitation to take on the task, um, a Micha Goodman quote comparing Moshe to Jonah. I remember, I think I said in this class, that the great Micha Goodman of the Harman Institute says that both of them were reluctant prophets. Jonah, uh, Moshe was reluctant because he he feared he would fail. They're not going to believe me. And Jonah was reluctant because he feared he would succeed and the people would get off easy because he would convince them to all do tshuva and all of a sudden their punishment would be averted. So neither of them want to take God's, God's job as prophet, but for opposite reasons. Um, and that's always struck me as a really interesting contrast. And I never connected the swallowing of the dog to the midrashic swallowing of by the Nachash here. So that's, that's another really wonderful linkage between those two characters. Thank you, Joanna. Uh, I'm not sure who I'm calling on. Is it Diane, Larry? Is it, uh, who is over there? Is it Rick? Is it, is it the baby? Is it the dog? Whoever, whoever wants to speak, there's like, there's like, there's like a Seder going on at the Herman house. <laughs> it's all in the name of Millie. Yeah. Millie, right. Thank you for reminding the name. Hello. I have a question, um, that I know you can help with. Uh, in my Silverman edition, at the end of all this, there's a bunch of notes that I wanted to read to you and see if you could, if you want to pull it up on Safari or whatever. But um, it goes Talmud, so that must T A L M. That means Talmud. Then J E R. Jerusalem. Okay, and then Nidarim chapter three. Okay. Right. Then it's semicolon Mechilta Jethro. Maybe there's something there. Mechilta. So, so Mechilta. Is, yes. uh, is one of the early collections of Midrashim on the book of Shemot, and it's divided by Parsha. So Mechelta Yitro, right? So it's, right. It's, it's, it, this Midrash does not appear in Mechelta in Parsha Shemot, which is the Parsha we're in, but it appears in Parsha Yitro, yeah. Okay, I, I, my basic question is, are all these things saying the same thing, or maybe there's something different? And then the, there's two more, or there's one more. Well, Talmud, uh, uh, B. Nedarim, Babylonian Talmud Nedarim, yeah. Nedarim 32a, yeah, and then and then CF Exodus uh, Rabbah five, right. So does anything or is all the midrash from those couple of sources, or maybe there's something different there? They're all they're all citations of four biblical four rabbinic sources. Two different places in Tractate Nedarim: one in the Babylonian Talmud Talmud Bavli, and one in the Talmud. 
we in Hebrew refer to it as the Talmud Yerushalmi, but in English it's called the Palestinian Talmud, right? Oh, um, right? And it appears in both of those. And it also appears in Shemot Rabbah, which is the classic, um, the, 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 the most classic Midrash on the book of Exodus, and the Mechilta, which is another Midrash on the book of Exodus. And most, the, these citations are interesting. I haven't looked them up um, in our annotated Torah uh, Chaim version of it. Not every, but most narrative midrashim, as opposed to halachic midrashim, right? The whole canon of midrash is there's agadic midrash that is explaining the story, and halachic midrash, which is the, which is determining law. Most um, agadic midrashim in the canon appear more than once. They appear uh, somewhere in the Talmud and somewhere in the books of midrashim, and this one, according to that annotator, appears or a version of it appears at least four times. We've mentioned in the past um, the phenomenal work, um, Legends of the Jews by Professor Louis Ginsburg, who was a professor of Talmud and rabbinics at JTS. Uh, and he produced, um, he produced a book that, that it, it's, it's, it's truly unfathomable to imagine anyone producing ever, particularly before the internet, where he basically goes through, and I mean this, every midrash on um, on, the, on, the, on the Torah in all of the connections, the, the collections, the popular ones and the well-known ones, the least well-known ones. And he, he somehow puts them through a Rube Goldberg machine and he rewrites the story of the Jewish people from the creation of the world until the end of the Torah, somehow um, taking, including bits and pieces, but a one single narrative of all of those midrashim. So if we got to this section of Legends of the Jews, my guess is that he will have taken the different forms of those four places where this midrash appears and written it in English in such a way that it appears in one story. And then he has all the citations in the back. So this does not appear just once in rabbinic literature. It appears at least four times, and those are just citations. Uh, anything else at that table? Diane, you got to unmute again. On a, on a very light note, there's a children's poem by, I think, Shaw Silverstein called I'm e- Being Eaten by a Boa Constrictor. There's and a song to it, too. Yeah. You can't help but think of it when you, when you read this midrash. Well, I grew up on that song because it was on the Peter, Paul, and Mommy album of the Peter, Paul, and Mary trio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it was right after uh, Papa's taking us to the zoo tomorrow. Zoo. Uh-huh. Right? Um, so maybe, which is, is it Peter Yarrow is Jewish? Which of the three is Jewish? I think I, Peter yeah. Yarrow is Jewish. And so maybe Peter Yarrow loved the Babylonian Talmud Midarim, and he, and, he, and he knew it. That's all I can think of. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Millie, anything? Going once? Don't be shy. Come on. From the mouth, from the mouth of babes. Uh, Norm. Norm Rachel. Um. Someone was talking about how would Zipporah have known what to do. And after the fact, it seems obvious. Surely Moshe did not marry this woman, <laughs> planning to circumcise her sons without just talking with her about what she's getting into. Um, did not bring her on this journey to um, Egypt to free a people that she doesn't know particularly um, without discussing with her various things. Um, and surely she knew that the baby was supposed to be circumcised, ideally on the eighth day. And so 
when this starts happening, it's not surprising that she's able to figure out mm-hmm. or she receives some sort of a communication, but sometimes she's able to know what needs to be done is to complete that. And she takes matters into her own hands and does so. Great. So Masechet Nedarim, uh, the snake tells her what to do. And Masechet Norm, she reasons, she reasons it out from what she'd been told by Moshe about the, the conditions of the people that he's about to, he's about to, about to serve. Great. I, I'm sure you've never converted any person to Judaism before they knew that when they have children, their sons are going to be circumcised. Right, right. Listen, that, that class in the intro class, when, when I bring in the trained snake to indicate exactly how to do it, it's the most popular class of the series every single year. Uh, it's hard to train that snake, though, but I'm bummed. Joel. Wait, can I just... Uh, oh, uh, Matt. Yeah. Sorry, sorry just that I think uh, I read this somewhere, but she's... Sipora is the daughter of a high priest, uh, so she probably knew what to do, If assuming they all came from some common uh, folk ways. That she, that she would have known without, even without the snake, that she, that she had a sense of what was That's, ritually yeah. required in the moment. Maybe. Yeah. Good. Uh, Joel. Um, well, I, I'd like to offer an anti-Rashi. Um, I'm, I wasn't at the class last week, but everyone seemed to give an interpretation of what all the pronouns were in the verse, but no one talked about Hamitot, um, who's being killed here. Um, and I think if you look back at the previous verse, it it really clarifies. It says, I mean, God's saying, oh, by the way, I'm in the process of killing your firstborn as we speak. Switch to the scene. Um, God meets him and tries to kill him. So maybe Moshe isn't even present at this scene. And the person that's being killed or attempted to being killed is Gershon, his firstborn. If I understand you correctly, which in my somewhat COVID foggy brain, I'm not sure I do. But if if I do, the only problem with that reading is is that the phrase Anochi Horege Bincha Bechorecha is within a quotation marks. The shot of the previous verse is that that's, those words are in a quotation marks of what Moshe is going to be saying to Pharaoh. I don't know how to read the, the possibly, but I don't know how to read the syntax of the previous two verses with, and, and have it come out to be that God is saying that to Moshe. Because if you go, if you go back to verse 22, Gamarta el Paro, you, Moses, should say to Pharaoh, this is what God is saying. So here's our third set of quotation marks. Ko Amar and I, this is what God says. God says to Moshe, you're going to say to Pharaoh, this is what God has said. Beni Bechori Israel, Israel is my firstborn. Va Omar Elecha, and I, Pharaoh, I, Moshe, as God, said to you, Shalach et Beni Viabdeni, send my, my son, my Firstborn son of Israel away, and they will serve me. And you, Pharaoh, what's that? Period. And you, and you, and you refused. Period. Oh, by the way, Moshe, I'm in the process of killing your son as we speak. Got it. Okay. Good. If if you do it that way, then uh, that is an acceptable anti-Rashi. So so we're we're, we're you're saying that God telegraphs to Moshe that he's going to kill 
his son. And then verse 24 is, it's, it is where it's happening. It still now, doesn't explain how Tzipora knew how to stop it. Well, at least it gives them a clue as to, as to what the, what the target was. Right. I mean, if, if God is in the process of killing Moshe, why would he think, why would she think? <laughs> about Gershon? Oh, I see. I see. If, if he's killing Gershon, well, well, yeah, that makes more sense. Gershon or Eliezer? Which one's the firstborn? Gershon. Yeah. And therefore you think that the circumcision in verse 25 is of Gershon? Do, do we know that Gershon was circumcised before this? No, we haven't been told. So why would we think it was Eliezer? The, the, the rationale for why common understanding of the verses is um, that it was Eliezer is because it's a, it's a version of, sorry, Matt, why we know that Yaakov wore a kippah. We, we know that Gershom was born, so therefore we assume that Gershom was brisked. And so if someone needs a brisk right now, it can't be Gershom. It must be that Eliezer has been born. We haven't been told. Um, all right. So let the, we'll add that to the possibilities. Uh, Stevie. Um, so I looked up the references and uh, in Nidaran, there's a bunch of different little uh, discussions of like what might've happened that are all sort of the first half of the Rashi is like, he's chosen one of them. Um, I didn't look in detail in, uh, in Shemot Rabbah, it has this story, but the, the couple of key points that I noticed, it's not translated, but is that um in the story, in, in, in Rabba, uh, God seems to be wanting to do violence. And then this angel, a Malach Shel Rachamim, appears and does this swallowing thing to indicate what's going on. Um, and the, and the Midrash ends with, uh, the, like, a general principle of like, and this is why you should do mitzvahs right away and not delay. Um, it's like in general more spelled out than Rashi, like it's a much longer paragraph. But those are the two sort of like identif- things I identified as being like uh, interesting. Aha! Uh-huh. I, I imagine that what you translate is that that's why you should you know do them right, right away without, without delay. That's probably in English of zrizin makdimi la mitzvah, right? That, that the, the, those those who are eager rush to do a mitzvah rather than tarry before doing it. I mean, for- that's the that's the gist of it. It says. Lulehi Veloni cell, but uh-huh. yeah. Got it. Yeah, and that and what Stevie just described, uh, I remind us, is happening on every page of Rashi. Rashi is is um doing a job. He's not just choosing or synopsizing, he is he is condensing sometimes very complicated midrashic explanations into a line or two just to plug the one hole that he needs. Um, as as a as a as a as a shot commentator, and I'll, I'll remind us for the thousandth time that Midrash's intent, to the extent that we can impute to a canon intent, is to be broadly and complexly interpretive. Rashi's intent, to the extent that we think we know it, is to be precise and just plug holes and answer questions. So w- 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 when Rashi um, brings from Midrash, he actually thinks he's importing Midrash in the service of Pshat. If we th- if if we're right about Rashi, which means that he's just going to like bring it all down to the, the, what he could put a fine point on and then put it right into his commentary. Well, what it sort of tapered over also is that the Midrash explicitly lays out like, the question is, 
how did Supiora know? And then the answer is, here's a spite, like, and this is how Supiora knew. It's like written out. Um, right, right. Rashi doesn't tell us the problem he's trying to solve. We have to, we have most of the time we're, we're inferring it from his answer. Uh, Sue, are you there, Sue? Sue. Hi. Hi. Sorry about that. Um, I I just really appreciate Joel's comments, and it made me think about how um, the the threat to kill one's firstborn is, uh, you know, also something that we know, and it's you know it from Abraham. It's like do this or else, and let me show you how bad this can be. Um, and, and I, I may test you to the very end. So that's what it made me think of. Like, uh, you know, there was Tsipora watching. God had just said, I'm going to tell Pharaoh I'm going to kill his firstborn. And here's what that's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems so plausible that that it just it, it's really echoes the the that. And that's something we know and we've seen before. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Sue. Uh, Millie? So I'm actually looking at a, um, a feminist reading of Torah called The Five Books of Miriam, which is uh, an older book. And um, so it's described in here that this is actually part of a Semitic myth story, early Semitic myth stories. And apparently um, there were stories about guardian goddesses who... who um, who were guarding heroes and they called their heroes bridegrooms. Hmm. So maybe this is an insertion of like some old myth. Really interesting. And, and right. Cause we haven't even gotten to the words in the story. This we're still on, we're on verse one of this fever story that, that brings in that nation, the Chatan Damim. And we're going to see there are several different ways of understanding just what those words mean. And yeah, a, a, a biblical critical view of the story would say this is probably ancient Israel's adaptation of, you know, m- mythic narrative imagery uh, that was common in the ancient world. Yeah. Hold on one second. Someone is. Sorry. Uh, I just have to turn on my turn off my notifications because someone sh- I don't want the f- the phone to disturb our class. Okay. Good. Uh, Stevie, hand again. You know, just to yeah. add to that, that there's something seemingly protective about blood in the Exodus narrative, and that, right, like, so if, right, if Moses is telling Pharaoh, you know, or God's telling Pharaoh, right, like, I'm going to go after your firstborn, then maybe they've got to be like, oh, well, maybe our firstborn also needs to be, like, we need to make sure that we're safe on, on our front, um, but we know, obviously, from the death of the firstborn that there's this like protective power of blood. And here also, it seems like the circumcision, then there's also a blood sort of dabbing. Um, Great. So um, in politics, they say, follow the money. If you, if you wanted to under, understand one of the themes of the Torah, you follow the blood, right? So the blood in this scene, the blood in, in um, like we don't, in, in the death of the firstborn blood isn't referenced, but, it, it, it verbally, but we understand the notion. It's referenced in terms of how the Israelites are saved from it. And then, of course, the first plague is blood, right? There's blood, there's blood taboo in our uh, tradition, particularly in the book of 
in the books of, uh, of Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, in terms of blood oozing from parts of the body that uh, it shouldn't ooze from, or when it oozes, it suggests the loss of life, menstruation. There's also water into blood that happens twice. Correct. Right. So, um, so it's probable that this scene and its, and its mentioning of damim, which we're going to get to, uh, is not out of context, but part of that, um, that, that, that whole, that, that whole communal ethos as to what, what, what blood means in a story, right? And what blood means in a communal tradition. Okay. Uh, anything else in verse 24? Or we can finally read verse 25, which we've been kind of anticipating, but not actually read. Okay. So let's read verse 25, which we haven't looked at. Let's see who we haven't heard from yet today. Rebecca Leonard, do you want to read verse 25? Okay. Where's Vatikach Tzipora? Vatikach Tzipora Tzor, the Tichrot et Orlat Benau, Vatanal Raglav. Taga, Gemo. Oh, thank you. Vetagal Raglav, Vatomer Ki Chatanda Mim Atali. Okay. And Tzipora took a tzor, a rock, and uh, cut off the foreskin of her son and touched it to his leg and said, uh, because or if or whatever, um, you are for me a bridegroom of blood. <laughs> it's like uh, someone mentioned before, um, a different, um, what did you mention, Ilana, is the first, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is more, you know, t- Tim Burton, right? Particularly that last rate, right? You, you are to me a bridegroom, a bridegroom of blood. How we would, how you would draw that out, if you wanted to imagine the art of such a scene, would be very, very interesting. Okay. Um, some of the words in this, excellent translation, some of the words in this verse are easy to deal with. Some of them are hard because of, guesses one has to make about the relationship between the object and the verb. For instance, I think you translated it reasonably as, and she touched it, meaning the foreskin, to his feet. Right? Is that how you translate it? Yes, that sounds good. Right. So, <laughs> so you're reading as like a he feel, that she, that she, that she, um, she she took the thing and caused it to be touched to his his legs or his feet, right? It could also be possibly read as not a he feel but a pa'al, and she touched his his feet. Um, that would normally be batiga, but uh, some people read it that way that it's um, it's it's not causative, it's 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 direct. And then we know what the word chatan means, and we know what the word damim means, and we know what the word atam means, and we know what the word li means. But put it all together, it's really just hard to figure out uh, any combination of English words that give a uh, a simple-ish explanation to these uh, to these Hebrew words. So let's start uh, with questions, right? Qu- like before we before we solve uh, before we solve for the problem, let's just name the algebra problem. What are the things that come up in the verse that could be problematic, Renee? Whose feet does she touch the rock to? Is it uh, Moshe or the kid? Very good, right? So Raglav has a uh, ambiguous 
possessive pronoun attached to it. We know it's a, a single, we know it's plural feet, single male owner of said, of said feet, right? Because it's, it's raglayim shalom is raglav. So whose is it? Is it the baby whom she, um, whom she circumcised? Is it Moshe? Is it something else? Good. More questions. Barry? Um, less question than uh, running with imagination, uh, which I think we're required to do here. Uh, we need to get ourselves into a different space. Um, so uh, going back to the uh, analogy of, of the snake and Brashit and uh and also the the early 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 antiquity um, uh, method of thought that um, uh, was brought up a few moments ago uh, that Sapara uh, is uh, offering to marry herself to the snake um, before this uh, uh, snake engulfs our total reality. Um, and, and she's offering herself as uh, to to, um, uh, to 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 marry uh, with the foreskin and the blood of her uh, her firstborn. That she's speaking to the snake. That that, she, that you're you're my you're my blood you're my blood husband. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Allowing the imagination to go here. Great. Vered Sheila uh, Alapasuk. I am not questioning about the procedure that she took a stone and whatever she did. I'm questioning how did she know that that will be the answer to the situation? How did she know that by her circumcising her son, this is what the Nahas wanted or hinted when he went up and down to his private parts. This is what she needs to do. Not that she knew how to do it, she did. Many women in those times, especially daughters of priests, they knew also to choose the sword. But how did she know that that's what needs to be done? So at first, I thought you were asking the question to which the midrash is the answer. But now you're asking. Now I understand that even if we accept the midrash that that's what the snake did, how did she know that that? snake action is indicating this particular thing that ought to be done with that part of the body, right? It's, it's a pretty heavy guess, right? If, if you're guessing that that's what a situation requires and you're wrong, right? You don't want to be wrong about that. So, so the question is how, how and why is Sipora so certain that, that whatever the illness is, the cure is the circumcision of her son. Good. Ilan? Because without hesitation, she knew what to do immediately. She right. took the stone and she did what she did. And Yeah, exactly. Ilan? Um, so two questions. One, why did she feel it necessary to take the foreskin and touch the husband at all? And why the feet? Was there any significance to the feet as opposed to the elbow or the knee or whatever? Such good questions. Who, whose ever feet they are, why is that the part of the body that this is, um, that the foreskin is being essentially thrown at? And, um, and, and, and whose feet? Is it, is it the feet of the child? Is it the feet of Moshe? Of, uh, of Moshe? Uh, some people read it as the feet of the snake. <laughs> The angel snake, correct, right? That 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 if God is pre- is pre- is presenting God's self as a snake 
as uh, as the communicator of the what's at stake in this moment, then some people read that the raglav is um, her taking the foreskin and throwing it at the antagonist in the scene, saying, "See, I I think I did what you asked me, asked me to do. Am I correct?" Right. So why why any of those? Um, as the answer to the question of whose feet they are. Good. More questions. Matt. I had a, a question about the word chatan. Uh, we assume it means bridegroom, but in, at least in, in some contexts in Hebrew, you say it means like a, someone wins a prize or something. He's a chatan prasisael. So it's like a designated one, maybe chosen one. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I would have to ask uh, Vered why the the honoree for a prize is considered a chatan. Um, I never thought about that, right? I, I, I wonder if, a, if, a, if part of that is connected to chatan, is why we call it chatan tara, chatan breshit. I always thought that, right. that, that that was chatan as in groom, like you, you, your devotion to the Torah is such that you become the, the Torah's groom, but I wonder if it's a different understanding of the word chatan. Veridic, can you help with that? Like an honoree or something. Vered there? I am. Chatandamim yeah. in Hebrew means a child that was circumcised. It's it's a notion. Chatandamim. Who chatandamim? Hmm. It's in so, literature and it's in why chatan? Like, what's the meaning of the word chatan there? Such that is it is it is it groom or is it something else? I don't know. I I always understood it as as a groom. Hmm. You know as Somebody that is the head of, like a chatan, is the head of the mishpacha or becomes the head of the mishpacha that is the head. Yeah, uh, it's it's a really interesting question, and I hadn't, and I and I don't know the answer to it. I'm glad you asked it, Matt. Uh, Joanna, can I just respond to that question, please, Rebecca? Yes. I think that often the word chatan is used as the person who is being celebrated. And so in a wedding, it would be obviously the groom. But in, you know, there's also chatan bar mitzvah, right? So I think it's basically the person that is being celebrated. Right. I think, right, that's true. And and certainly in Israeli society, it could be chatan bar mitzvah. I guess my the question I'm now thinking of after Matt asked it is why is that the case? That's, is that something having to do with the etymology of Chet Taf Nun? Or does, is, is Chet Taf Nun only groom and then the meaning like evolved to also mean, since it means groom, it also means the person, the, the person being honored in this moment. And I don't know. Um, and, and all those origins are murky, but I, 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 I want, I want to look into that because um, it might shed some light on what, is being uh, articulated here, and it might shed some light as to who is even being called Chatan Damim, because as um, Vered said, in Chatan Damim now is used to refer to the one who has been circumcised. Um, but that's not the only way of reading um, th- these verses, these words. Uh, Joanna, is your hand still up? Yes. Um so I'm looking ahead to the next verse where it says, Vayiref Mimenu, he, he, he relaxed or released him. And again, in this whole confounding of, you know, who do prepositions refer to, it appears to me at least to refer to the fact that 
God or the angel had a hold on his life and now released and let him go and let him live. In which case, is there a possible read of the end of verse 25, that that actually is a reference to God? Tzipora is saying, through what I have now done, I have bound myself to you, God. An image, especially after the giving of the Sefer Torah, that, you know, is replete in Judaism, where, you know, the, the Torah is the ketubah of the marriage between God and the Jewish people. Hmm. Very nice, right? Like we're, hey, God, you and I are blood brothers, because I've just, I've just done the blood act that shows my devotion to you. It's not just, it's not just Moshe in this story with you. It's, it, it is I. I mean, certainly plausible, not, 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 not that much less plausible than the standard shot that I don't, I don't even know if we mentioned yet. The standard shot is that the, that whom she is speaking to is the child, right? That, that, that you, that you child, you newly circumcised child are a bridegroom of blood to me, or just to give a little bit of the Rashi way, you almost were, right? Is, is, is the Chatan Damim Atali what is is the is the person slash object of what chatandamim is getting that that title because of what she just did, or because of what was happening in the scene, which is why she did what she did, right? And that'll make a little more sense once we get to the Rashi, which obviously will not be today because we have three minutes left. So just a just a very quick comment. Also, if that's the case, is there anything in the commentaries about, you know, the notion of using Chatan to refer to one's son? That seems like an odd mixing of familial terms to refer to one's son as a group. Yeah, very, which makes me wonder, are there, are there aspects of that, of that word that need more investigation? Just what, what, like, do, the translation problem. Do we, do we, do we, Run in, run into it in an operable problem every time we just translate chatan into groom. Which, if you know more about what chatan meant in Hebrew, you would never run into because you wouldn't go to groom in your head necessarily. And I don't know, I don't know enough about that word. I have to, I have to, I, I want to. I don't have time right now to look it up, but I want to look it up in in Brown Driver Briggs and see if there's anything else in that noun itself. Uh, okay, uh, three more hands: Sue, Rebecca Leonard, and then Barry, and then we'll call it. Um. Well. I- we t- we have in Shir Shirim we have um, the 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 people we have our people bound to God it's a chatan and um, it chatan damim it just seems like you know bl- that we are bound blood that that we're binding in in blood this child as a chatan of the of the breed yeah yeah I mean it. There, there, there are ways we can take our our use of the word chatan as groom and understand that in these bonding rituals, there is a marriage taking place, as someone just referenced before, I forgot who. That's how, how Sinai is understood in the Midrash, right? That they didn't stand underneath, they didn't stand at the foot of the mountain, they stood underneath the mountain because the mountain was the chuppah. So we can smush chatan kwa groom into some of this um, meaning. But the question is, is there something else going on in the word chatan? And I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, Rebecca Leonard? Uh, yeah, so um, two things here. Number one, in my modern Hebrew dictionary, it defines chatan as 
bridegroom, son-in-law, guest of honor, laureate. And I guess we, you know, discussed all of those already. Yeah. But in my etymological dictionary, it comes up with something which I think is pretty interesting, is that for the word chatan, it says many scholars compare this word to the Arabic chatana, which means he circumcised. Wow. In reference to the ancient custom according to which circumcision was performed in young men before their marriage. Wow. That is fascinating. Can you read that one more time? Sure. Many scholars compare this word to the Arabic khatana, meaning he circumcised. In reference to the ancient custom according to which circumcision was performed in young men before their marriage. That's fascinating. I'm not sure what to do with that, but that that could be a, a very key etymological missing link there. Wonderful. I forgot. I, I missed that book. Is that the same book that you've been using all these years? It is. I love that book. What a, what a book that is. Um, okay, Barry, last word. So um, going back to the imaginary world, um, I recall my reading in Zohar in Breshit, it was a long, long uh, uh, sessions on the subject of the snake. Before God commanded the snake would crawl on the ground, the initial snake was a standing being with legs and arms yeah. um, capable of copulating with uh, Eve. And uh, uh, taking this ancient model, uh, which I would assume that Zipporah in her training is aware of, uh, she is offering herself in marriage to this Hatan with the uh, um, uh, foreskin of her uh, circumcised son. This is a very deeply uh, evoking uh, image. Yeah. Forget Moshe. He's off to save the people. He's He's not part of this picture. Yeah. Um, and in, that, in such an image, this nachash might have raglayim, right? It's like a like a, a primordial nachash that has like like bringing back the 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 serpent before the Garden of Eden story that had legs and could stand up. It was very clearly presented there. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we'll call it there, um, and uh, we'll um, we'll keep going next week. And and if I can find anything more about the word chatan to now and then, I will. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.